All right. Well, um, yeah. So you guys, for the past year and a half, have been kind of going through this journey. Pastor Jim has been taking you guys through this journey. It started in the book of Leviticus with God redeeming a certain people group for himself. And with this people group, he was going to create a dwelling place. And he was going to introduce a new kind of moral and a new kind of ethic by which people would live by and people would see beauty in the world. And then not too long ago, you guys um, had a series in the book of Ephesians where um, Pastor Jim likened the, the series in Leviticus to a blueprint, but then in Ephesians, it's like there's a builder that needs to come and start building this building where God is going to dwell. And now, um, in the book of Philippians, you guys are talking about the people that are indwelling that building and, and the type of people that they are. And he's entitled this series, The Beauty of Jesus. And I think it's such a great title. Um, I recently got back from a preaching and teaching conference. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about that conference um, was that it wasn't just about technique or style. It wasn't about like how to just develop a sermon or how to move from a text to like words on a page and how to do it in a way that's compelling. Um, they talked about the importance of the preacher and the teacher lifting Jesus up on high, displaying his beauty and allowing God to draw people. Because when Jesus's beauty is on full display, people are compelled. And I remember just that striking me because there are a few things um, that can actually compel a person to, to change in their direction or their thinking, um, like beauty can, right? Like they're, they're, culture can fight culture war with culture war, um, ideology with ideology, but there's nothing that works quite like beauty does. And, and Jesus is beautiful. And so um, that's what we want to do. We want to lift up and elevate Jesus and, and display his beauty because I truly do believe that you become what you behold. And so if you want your life to be beautiful like Jesus' life, you, you need to behold the life of Jesus so that your life can start to take shape and you start to take on the characteristics of Jesus, the values of Jesus. You start extending yourself to people like Jesus did. And so the, I, tr- I love this, uh, the idea of this series. I think it's great. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in the first nine verses um, today. And if you have your phones, that's okay. That'll do. Um, let me go ahead and pray, though. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and to be here. It is a privilege when your family can gather together in a room to encourage one another, to lift one another up, to support one another, to alleviate burdens, to encourage one another, to live into the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do, works that bring you glory and works that bring people to the realization that they need you and that there is nothing else in this world that can satisfy the longings of their heart aside from you. This time is special. And I I pray this quite often um, when I have an opportunity to teach, but I pray that we would not um, just be content to come and to consume, to get something to feel like we checked off that box and to go about our week, but I pray that we would meditate, chew on these things that we're going to be talking about today, that you would allow it to direct our thoughts, that it would fill our minds so that we can be, um, like, you're, like you say in Philippians 4, a people that possess a peace that surpasses all understanding, that leads to wholeness where we rest in you. I pray over this time, um, Lord, you know that you have full permission to edit my sermon. If there's something in here that needs to go, 
take it out. If there's something that I haven't put in and you want to say it, say it to your people. We love you. We trust you with this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So have you ever met someone who was just like irritatingly positive all the time? Like, just that type of person that's like, no matter what you bring at them, they're like always like, yeah, it's fine. No matter what's going on in my life, it's good. It's, it's good stuff. Um, you know the type of person that I'm talking about. It's just they have a positive way to spin everything that happens to them. Um, I, I met a, I've met a couple people like that. I think the first person that I really met like that was in college. Um, he was a really interesting character, um, but he definitely possessed a positivity, positivity that was a little bit irritating, but secretly I kind of envied. More recently, though, there's another person um, that I wanted to highlight, and that's Pastor Jim. Pastor Jim can be a little bit irritatingly positive sometimes, right? Um, I love him. But I remember having, um, well, let me, before I say that, let me just ask if you have ever experienced that with uh, Pastor Jim. Have you ever brought something to him and it's like negative, it's hard, you're, you're struggling, and no matter what, he just pulls a skin and he spins that thing into something positive. He takes your straw and whips it into gold. It's crazy how he, how he can do it. It's a little bit irritating, but I, I see the value in it. I remember having coffee with him not too long ago. Um, in his office, and he was telling me about a recent travel incident that he had had. He was, we all know that Pastor Jim goes and teaches for weeks on ends in different countries like Cambodia, Nepal, Africa, and different things. And um, on his way back from one of those events, um, he had a layover in London, and he was tired from all of the teaching and all the traveling, um, and rightfully so. And it was the last flight that he had um, to make it back home to Denver to drive up the hill and to get back into his bed. The only problem was that the airline oversold the flight. Um, and so there was a delay. They had to wait to board the passengers while they, they started to like try to figure out how to sort that problem out. And that's not a, too atypical. We're, we're familiar with that. Maybe you've experienced that, right? That's not too atypical. But what made matters worse and I really do hope that I'm remembering this story correctly, is that once he boarded the plane and everybody boarded the plane, um, they came on the speaker and said that they needed eight more people to give up their seats because they didn't have enough seats. And there were some really important people that needed to be on that plane. And as you can imagine, there was an audible sigh um, when that announcement was made from multiple passengers who were, who were tired, who were irritated. They just wanted to get home. Um, but not from Jim, right? Jim, Jim saw this as an opportunity, and so he raised his hand, and he volunteered to get off the plane, which he didn't need to do because he was flying business class, which he made a point to tell me. But for Jim, he didn't mind because he knew that the Lord was up to something and that he was going to use it somehow. But as he continued to tell me um, all that was happening, um, he said that he was quietly sitting and observing all of the reactions of the passengers, which I feel like is a very gym thing to do. Um, he was struck by just how frustrated all of the passengers were when their travel plans got interrupted. It's not like they weren't going to get home. They were going to get home. It would just be a little bit later, right? And the airline was doing everything that they could do to correct their mistake, to get people onto different flights. Um, but for most people, that, that didn't matter. They wanted to be on that flight. And they, they made sure that the staff who was working for the airline knew that they wanted to be on that flight and that this was their problem, right? But Jim had a different reaction. Yeah, he wanted to get home. Um, he, was tell he told me, he's like, no, I wanted to get home. I was tired. It was, it was a long week. 
Um, And it would have been nice if the airline didn't oversell um, the plane, but they did. And there was nothing they could do about it. And moreover, the people that were trying to assist the passengers um, that night, it wasn't their fault. They were just the bearers of bad news. And so they're getting lit up by some angry travelers. Um, And it wasn't long before how um, Jim realized how the Lord was going to use this incident. Because in the midst of all of this hostility, Jim was a non-anxious, non-threatening, joyous presence. He calmly volunteered to give up his seat for someone else and to get on a later flight. And that stuck out to the airline staff. Multiple members of the staff commented on um, Jim's calm and joyful demeanor, which Jim proceeded to use as kindling to fire up a conversation about the Lord. Now, as Jim is telling me this story, I was just politely sipping my coffee and nodding my head and and thinking, dude, I get it. You're better than me. (laughs) You're better than me because I'm not that kind of passenger. (laughs) I'm the passenger that sighs and gets frustrated that the airline didn't do their job correctly. But all joking aside, um, apart from making me feel bad about myself and the type of person that I am and the life decisions I make, that conversation got me thinking about how I conduct myself in public places. And I started to feel a small conviction give rise in my heart, and I started to ask myself, if I'm the type of person who reacts to difficult uh, situations and scenarios with a cool and level head, spoiler alert, I'm not. I'm not that guy. Which is probably why it was convicting in the first place. But as I continued to reflect on our conversation, I couldn't help but to think that there was a lot there, especially given our current cultural context and how anxious people are right now with everything going on. Election cycles, the market, school board decisions. There, there has to be something to, to this whole um, no, non-anxious, um, joyous presence thing. In a world that's anxiously moving from one thing to the next, terrified by the what-ifs in life, and driven by the current of their emotions, there's something compelling about someone who maintains a calm and level head, someone who has a, a joyous presence. There was a book written about this when there's transition periods in culture, when they call it a gray zone, when you're moving from one societal norm to the next. In the middle, there's a gray zone because people don't really know what to do, and they're looking to anyone and everyone to just kind of guide the way. And so there's a lot of anxiety in the gray zone. And the type of leadership that thrives and blossoms in that gray zone is a non-anxious leadership. People that have a calm and level head. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, isn't that Jesus? In a world driven by fear and anxiety, largely induced by religious fanaticism and poverty and opposing military oppression, Jesus was an outlier. People couldn't quite put their finger on him. They couldn't quite understand him because they'd never seen anything like him before. But he, he didn't allow his emotions, like when I, when I look at the life of Jesus, he didn't allow his emotions to be, uh, to be controlled by his circumstances. No, he was like way more calculated and way more level-headed than that. He was a non-anxious, joyous presence. And people took notice because there was something beautifully compelling about the way that Jesus lived his life. I was, um, we have these books from my girls um, it comes from uh, an author named Jenny Allen. She, she wrote a series called the Story of God series. This is the third book 
in the series, and it's um, I Am Rescuer, and it's all about Jesus. And um, as my daughter and I were reading this literally last night, um, we got to this page, and so it was like after Jesus was born, and he was growing in wisdom and in stature and as a man. It says, when Jesus grew into a man, people began to follow him because they saw that he was like me. This is God speaking. They saw that he was like me, loving and powerful, generous and forgiving, good and kind. And you can see in this, uh, this picture, Jesus stands apart from the people that are looking at him. They all have these kind of dark splotches on their bodies, but not Jesus. Jesus has a, a shining light. And so I was talking to my daughter about that, that Jesus just lived differently. He lived in such a beautifully compelling way that people were just drawn to him, and they didn't even know why, but they were, they were drawn to him. And I'm launching into this theological treatise on the beauty of Jesus, and my daughter's like, finish the book, dude. Like, finish the book. I'm done with this. But, man, the beauty of Jesus it's compelling. The lifestyle of Jesus is compelling. The lifestyle of his people is to be compelling. And that's what I think Paul is picking up on here in in the letter to the Philippians. Like Jesus, Paul had learned to be content in everything, in plenty or in need, in bondage, in chains or free. Paul had a joy that couldn't be taken from him because his joy was not based on his circumstances. Now, his joy was based on a relationship. So he was resolute. He wasn't anxious. He knew that whatever came his way, that God was in control and that his life was protected until his allotted task, his ministry, was finished. There was this trust in the sovereignty and protection and provision of God. And that's why he could write, Rejoice in the Lord always from a prison cell. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that kind of resolve and that kind of joy beautiful. I find it compelling. And that's what I'm after in this life. I want to know Jesus in such a way to be so close to Jesus that regardless of what comes my way, I'm calm, I'm level-headed, I'm not anxious, I'm joyful because there's a resolute trust that he is in control, that he is working all things together for my good to be conformed into the image of his son. That no matter what I go through and experience in this life, nothing can happen to me apart from his knowing it, allowing it, right? And so my ministry, whatever it is, I just want to be completely at rest and at peace in Jesus. And I want people to see that in me. I want my daughters to see that in me. I want to be the type of parent who's not reactive, When things go wrong, I want to be calm. I want to be present, right? I want to be joyful. And so this morning, what I want to talk to you about is what it means to cultivate a joyous and non-anxious presence that's not based on your circumstances. And I'm I'm going to contend right out of the gate here, tilting my cards just a little bit for you so you know where I'm going, that many of the struggles that we face today which I believe are the struggles that the Philippians were facing during this time, are ultimately due to our perception of who God is and how life should operate. Okay? Um, I think 
a lot of what ministry is supposed to be and a lot of the things that we struggle with is we struggle to reposition ourselves. When things are bad and things are right in our face and that's all we can see, we struggle to reposition ourselves in such a way to see the beauty and the goodness of God and to rely on that. We get caught up right here. This is all that we can see, right? And so... I think that that's what they were struggling with. I think that that's what we struggle with. And so let's dive in and, and talk about this. He begins in verse, um, verses 1 through 3. So then, my brothers and sisters, dear friends, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. I appeal to Yodia and to Synthaki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say to you, my, um, Yes, I also say to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together with the gospel, ministering along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He begins this, this chapter, this letter with such intimate language. Um, it almost is kind of awkward to read because he's just piling up terms of endearment. My brothers, my sisters, dear friends, whom I long to see, dear friends. He's just like, what he, he loves these people that he is writing to. And, and not only does he care for them and love for them, he longs for them. He's miles and miles away, sitting in a prison cell, and all he can think about in this moment is being near to these people. He planted this church in Acts 16, and I don't know if he had ever been back after that. He had got, he caused an uproar like Paul typically does, got thrown in jail, converted the jailer, and then left. And so there's a lot of things that are going on in this church, and he cares for them. He wants to know how they're doing. He wants to, he wants to ask, like, how, I know things are tough, but how are you doing? I just want to hug you. He longs for them. And it's interesting because as I was studying this passage, I learned that this term to long for in this way is used only once in the New Testament right here. And so many scholars think that it adds to the intensity of his emotions here, that he's probably feeling something akin to homesickness. It's like what I feel when I go on a trip and I just, when I'm there, it's great and it's cool, but I just want to be home near my kids. Like, I just want to hug my kids and be next to my wife and hug her. And it's getting harder and harder because I travel quite a bit. And it's harder now to go away because every time I come back, it seems like my girls are taller and they're smarter and more clever and more sassy, which I could do without that. But they're awesome. And I just want to be near them. I want to spend time with them. Right? And I think that that's what Paul is doing. He wants to see their faces. He wants to see how they're holding up. They are his joy and his crown. It's like that, that language that he's using is meant to denote like at the Olympics when the emperor would give this athlete who had given his entire life to this event and he won, the emperor would lay this crown on his head and it became his most treasured possession. And he's saying, you guys, all of you, you are my crown. It's something akin to like a gold medal in the Olympics today. He's like, I want to wear you around my neck. I'm so proud of you. I miss you. And so he is reaching out to them and he exhorts, to, um, exhorts them to stand firm in the Lord. That's how he began this letter. And that is now how he is finishing this letter. Stand firm in the Lord. He's calling their attention back to the first chapter. Um, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 27, um, he says, As citizens of heaven, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, 
Um, I should be, whether I'm absent, I should hear you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, not being intimidated by the way of your opponents. That's what he's talking about here, standing firm in the Lord. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. You are to live lives worthy of the gospel by remaining committed to Jesus. Like soldiers in the military, you're to stand shoulder to shoulder in allegiance with one another, with your heels dug in, ready to go to battle, not flinching, without apology. You are to declare with, the, with your words and with your lives your allegiance to Jesus. You are committed to him. Stand firm in the Lord. And that sounds really nice, and it sounds nice to say from a stage, but that's kind of ambiguous, right? What does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? And that's what he provides here in chapter 4. Um, it's not super logical. It's not like it builds on a bunch of things. I think he just like blasts out a bunch of stuff that says, here's some things that, like, this is how you live. Stand firm in the Lord. You're unified. You agree. You rejoice. You're gentle and reasonable. You're not anxious. You pray with thanksgiving. Your hearts are filled with gratitude. You are a people that display gratitude, and you don't let your circumstances be the determining factor of your emotional and mental health. And then he, and then he moves into this interesting appeal to two women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche. And he appeals to them. He's pleading with them to agree in the Lord. This is the first example of what he's giving as, as to how to, to stand firm in the Lord. You are to agree with one another. You are to be of the same mind in Jesus. And that's why Paul, like, I mean, how often has Paul in this letter been fighting for unity? Stand in unity together. Your togetherness, your withness displays the beauty of the gospel. That's what Jesus did when he was walking, right? He stood side by side with his disciples. He walked with them. He taught them. He fellowshiped with them. Stand side by side. That doesn't mean you need to agree on every little minutia, like every little last detail. Um, unity does not mean uniformity, but you are agreeing on the same goal. The gospel is the most important thing. And so he is pleading with them because there's this dispute amongst them. And it's kind of a big deal because these two women apparently are leaders within the church. And so as they're disputing, that could lead to ripples of fraction and division within the church. And he's like, no, we can't have that. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel you've received. That's not the gospel you learned. You squash that. Put aside your differences. Like in Philippians uh, chapter 2, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. You sacrifice for the other person. You're a peacemaker. You lay yourself down in humility for that other person without seeking to get something back. Squash your stuff. Come together because the gospel can do that. And that's beautiful. That's compelling. And so he appeals to them and pleads with them to do that. But then he says, um, I also say to you, true companion, help them. He brings in a third party. And he brings in a third party because we can be pretty, pretty petty creatures a lot of times, right? Like we need help. When we're in the heat of the moment, we're very short-sighted. We, we don't see resolution. We see offense, and so this third person is coming in and saying like, hey, be reminded of the gospel. Be reminded that 
in the beginning, you were contending with one another for the gospel. You were fighting with one another for the gospel. Your names are written in the book of life. It's not like one of you is gone while the other's there. Syntyche gets in, but Yodia, you're out. Sorry, you messed it up. No, you're both in the book of life. So squash it and move forward. That's beautiful. I think we can often lose sight of what's most important. But I want to point out, I don't think that these two women are bad people. They've just lost sight of what's most important, which is easy to do. We've all been there. And so Paul doesn't linger there longer than he needs to. And even though he calls them out, it wasn't to embarrass them. It was to like build them up. Hey, come alongside each other. And so he moves on by encouraging them and all his readers to rejoice. And so in verses 4 and 5, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. And man, what a transition that is. If we're not careful, I think we can easily gloss over that. But I think it's an important lesson that we need to land on for just a few moments. What Paul does in a blink of an eye is he moves his readers from a place of hostility and possible division to a place of celebration. He moves them from a a potential um, cynicism to a place of celebration. He says, hey, don't sit in that place because you'll become cynical. Move to celebration. You need to settle your dispute, and I know that that's going to be hard. You might not even be on speaking terms right now, but God is able. He's done it before. Hasn't he been faithful? So rejoice, my fellow co-workers, and remember your names are written in the book of life. And I think that's genius because when we often get stuck in a place of despair, it becomes really easy for us to dismiss the work of God. And when all you can see is the problem at hand right in front of your face, it's easy to become plagued by a lack of expectation. You're no longer waiting expectantly for the Lord to move because all you can see is your problem straight in front of your face. I think problems have a tendency to cloud our perspective. And when we don't deal with our problems or we fail to reposition ourselves to look upon the goodness and the beauty of our God, we can inadvertently train ourselves to pay attention to the darkness and completely ignore the light. You guys following with me? You tracking? Have you ever been there? And so Paul is challenging his readers to actively fight back against the threat of division by celebrating. He wants them to rejoice, to be joyful. And I think that Pastor John Tyson captures this sentiment well when he writes, quote, when we take the time to celebrate and to rejoice, whether personally or communally, we are bringing the glory of God into the brokenness of the world around us. We're accurately accurately representing the God we serve and offering tangible, touchable grace to the world. Man, that's so good. But how is that type of posture possible when things aren't going well, when things are looking bleak, when your back's against the wall, when you feel misunderstood or you feel undervalued? How are you supposed to rejoice in those kinds of seasons? Because doesn't that feel just a little bit disingenuous? I think that's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked it. 
Um, I think Paul is challenging um, his readers to be joyful, to rejoice in all seasons, because joy is not an emotion or a feeling. It's more durable than that. Joy doesn't rise or fall with your circumstances because joy doesn't depend on your circumstances. Paul can challenge, um, or I like this way the um, systematic theologian Willie Jennings defines joy. He states that, quote, joy is an act of resistance against all the forces of despair. I love that. Joy is an act of resistance against all the forces of despair. Joy is a work that can become a state of being, which, become, which can become a way of life, end quote. And I think that joy, uh, Jennings is, is right. It seems to me that joy is best understood as a state of being. It is a bold confidence to actively choose to believe that everything is going to be all right. It's choosing to rest in God in his faithfulness, and in his promises. Let's not forget here that Paul is writing from a prison cell. From the beginning of his ministry, his circumstances have always been less than ideal. So Paul is encouraging his readers to follow um, his example and to rejoice in the Lord always. And what that tells me is that joy is not the absence of suffering. Paul had plenty of suffering. Paul, like Jesus, though, was able to see beyond his suffering to a greater joy. And I want to be careful here because I don't want you to hear me saying that Paul just ignored his sufferings and encouraged his readers to buck up because it's going to get better soon. That's not what was happening. Paul, like Jesus, endured his suffering, despising its shame because of what the suffering produced. Not only did the suffering do a work in Paul, conforming him to the image of Jesus and make him rely heavily on God, not only did it do that, but it served to advance the gospel. How many times have we read in his letters that he is in chains and he is okay with it because it is serving to advance the gospel? So what else can he do but rejoice? He's following the example of his Lord and Savior, who in Hebrews 12, it says um, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the, the perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, or who endured for the, uh, the cross for the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame. There was something greater that Jesus was looking to. Right? And so I think given our definition of joy, it only makes sense that these are the type of people that are also um, characterized by gentleness and reasonableness because their joy isn't rooted in well-being. Their joy is rooted in the Lord. And so it makes sense that Paul would encourage his readers to let everyone see their gentleness, regardless of their circumstances, what people are, are going to put them through. They are to be equitable and fair to all people. They are to count other people more valuable than themselves. People characterized by this kind of joy bless other people. They work to relieve people's burdens. They help people breathe easier. They alleviate pain and distress. In short, they are to be salt and light. In the Beatitudes, when Jesus said, you are to be the salt and light of the earth, I think it's right before or right after, he says, rejoice in your sufferings always. And it's like, man, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't compute to me. But Jesus is intentional in his words. He's never spastic. He's intentional because I think what he's telling people is that, that a joy that persists, that's a joy that brings salt. Like, that's salt. That is flavor. 
That's something different. That brings light. That's compelling. And so there uh, to endure and to remember the Lord is near. Now let's quickly get through our last couple verses here. Starting in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your request to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things and what you learned and received and heard and saw me, saw in me, do these things and the God of peace will be with you. So do not be anxious about anything. Cool, Paul. Easier said than done. Have you ever struggled with anxiety? Because it's not something that just goes away that quickly. And as somebody that struggles with um, depression and anxiety and sees a counselor for it, I can tell you when I read that, I'm like, man, this is difficult to get through. But I don't think that Paul's saying here that if you just pray one time, all of your anxious thoughts just disappear. What I think he's doing is he's saying that you need to give your life over to a regular rhythm and practice of prayer, communing with your creator. As with most, as with most things, the more that you make prayer and gratitude a practice and a habit in your life, it's likely that anxiety is going to begin to dissipate. And the peace of God, which brings wholeness and security, will lift you up and rest in your bones. And you will be a person filled with joy. But here's my point. You need to draw near to God in order for that to happen. I know how easy it is when anxiety sets in, how quickly our default is like, I got this. I don't need you. I'm going to take care of it myself because I know what I need to do. I recently preached in Isaiah 30, and the Lord said, it says that the the people of Israel... Um, the Assyrian army was coming in and they were getting close and they didn't know what to do. And so they were like, we're going to go back to Egypt because we're safe in Egypt. And so they got on their horses and they started riding, not knowing that the horses that were following were way faster. And that got me thinking about anxiety and how often I try to solve my own problems and I don't even wait on the Lord or bring anything to him or seek his guidance or wisdom and help. And then I try to do it and then my anxiety amplifies. What Paul's talking about here is we need to be a people who make a regular habit and uh, practice of going to the Lord in prayer with gratitude, recognizing all that he has done for us because he cares for you. And if you ever question that, remember that he took on flesh, came down, and the hands that healed the leper and healed the blind person were nailed to a cross for you, and the feet that walked on water were nailed to the cross for you, and he was put in a tomb dead, and he died until sin and death died, and then he rose again for you so that a relationship could be made whole between you and your creator. So if you ever question that he cares for you, or if you ever question that he's present and active in your life right now, you need to like reposition yourself. I would venture to say that you have something right here in front of your face that is blocking you from being able to see the glorious goodness and love of your heavenly father, his faithfulness. He cares for you. And I would also argue that if at times it feels like the Lord is absent, that he's not working, you've made those prayers, 
Maybe it is just that you need to practice your level of awareness because maybe he's working in ways that you didn't expect and you just didn't know what to look for so you didn't see it. We need to spend time curating the thoughts of our mind. We need to think on what is true and what is worthy of respect and just. What is praiseworthy? Stop allowing yourself to have an influx of social media and bad news that just make you anxious all of the time. If you are spending four minutes in this, but three hours on social media, are you, is there any wonder that you're, you're anxious? I know that sounds harsh. I'm the same guy. I love Netflix. I also love The Office, which isn't on Netflix anymore. Um... But this is, this is what I'm saying. Like, fill your mind with things that are true so that when this stuff comes and it's right in front of your face, you know how to talk back at it. We have to get into the practice of learning how to preach to ourselves so that we can escape the dark night of the soul when it comes. And it inevitably will come. You have a Lord and a Savior who cares for you, who loves you. He doesn't want you to be anxious. He's saying, give me all of it. Please come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you Rest. He wasn't joking when he said that. He wants that for you. So go to him and cast it on him. He cares for you. But we do need to learn how to curate our minds. I will say this as a closing quote. Um, This was from C.S. Lewis. It got me. Quote, good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to and even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize that which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. End quote. So for C.S. Lewis, the formula for joy was to get near to God. Be in close proximity to the one who can bring you joy. So as you go, my encouragement would be to reflect on the beauty of Jesus and to behold him because what you become what you behold. If you want your life to take shape, to be like Jesus, you need to behold him. Practice awareness. Think about the way that, ways that God is at work actively in your life and in your community. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, again, are so thankful for this time. It is such a blessing to be able to come and to learn from your word. It's challenging. It says, you say in um, Hebrews 4 that your word is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the joints and to the marrow because you know us. When we come to you, to your word, it fully exposes us to you. We are laid bare. We can't hide. It exposes all of our struggles and convictions and all of that. And so, Lord, we give it to you because you were happy to do what you did to restore relationship with us. Let us trust in you more and more and more. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.